I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. When I was in high school, my pastor decided that he would teach our Sunday school class the letter to the Romans, and he was really excited about it. And we we were all in this room sitting around in a circle looking at each other, and, and he was just going away at the text. And what I remember is I, I didn't understand anything that he was talking about. That was my first experience studying Paul's letter to the Romans. To be to be fair to him, my mind was quite muddled at the time. I didn't have a clear grasp on the gospel. But I, I left Romans alone for about eight years after that. And then towards the end of college, I remember debating with my brother Charlie whether or not Paul in Romans 7 is speaking from the perspective of a non-Christian or a Christian. And I, I don't remember which side I took or which side he took, I do remember thinking, how do I answer this difficult question in chapter 7 when I don't know what chapter 6 is about and I don't know what chapter 8 is about? But that just led me to think, yeah, but I also don't know what chapter 5 is about or what chapter 9 is about. So if I, if I want to answer some of the more difficult or understand some of the more difficult passages in Romans, then I, I need to work at understanding the flow of the argument from the beginning to the end. How, what's the whole letter about and how does it fit together? So that led me to doing my own inductive Bible study of Romans over the next couple of years, really trying to work out the parts and and see how they all fit together. And I, I determined to make my observations from beginning to end without looking at any commentaries until I had already written down my own comments and questions. I, I didn't figure Romans out after that first in-depth study. I, I learned that's not really how Bible study goes. You, you come to a book and you study it deeply, and then you, you leave it. And then with some life experience and, and just letting it settle for a while, you come back several times and study again. I was convinced after that first study that Paul's argument in Romans is powerful and it's logical. And it's a deep presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is worth knowing forwards and backwards. And so I've come back again and again to Romans over the past 30 years to be strengthened in my understanding of the gospel. I also eventually made it to the commentaries to check out my observations and really to be discipled by scholars who've gone before and who've spent so much time and effort in Romans the, comment- the commentary that spoke to me the most was Douglas Moo's uh, from the New International Commentary series, and I, I, I looked at other commentaries as well, but I, I want to give Moo credit for challenging me and really helping me put more pieces together. I would not encourage you to start with commentaries, uh, nor even to depend on a teaching series like, like this one, but to start with your own observations, to pick up your own Bible and to get a notebook and a pen or a laptop and a word file and start observing. Start looking at the whole. How do, from chapters 1 through 16, how does Romans seem to fit together? What, what seem to be the major divisions or shifts in the argument? And then also look at the parts and getting, getting down close. How do the phrases and the sentences and the paragraphs fit together? How does Paul, how does the flow of his argument move from chapter to chapter? And you simply, good observation is simply writing down what strikes you as important or interesting or strange. What are the things that you notice that that repeat or connect? Writing down your questions. Questions are great observations, and you don't have to know the answers to them. You note them, and you'll wrestle with it, and you'll come back to it. 
So get into the Bible yourself. It's, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise where you bring your heart and your mind to God's word and you trust him to work on you and to speak to you. Do you want the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform how you think and how you live? Then get to know Paul's letter to the Romans. This series is intended as an aid to help you do that. So let's get started. The letter of Paul to the Romans. So we've got a letter. What makes a letter a letter? What do you think? A letter is a message written from somebody to somebody or or from a group of people to another group of people. So some of the New Testament letters, uh, they might be written in the form of a letter without actually being a letter. So that, that could be Hebrew or James where we have a collection of sermons or one sermon uh, written as a letter, but we're not really sure who it was written to. But when Paul writes a letter, Paul Paul is writing to an individual or he's writing to uh, a church, which means there's always some kind of context. It's not some abstract Christian truth. It's not theology or philosophy for a textbook. This is truth at work, truth in life. It's truth from a seasoned pastor and missionary to a group of people living, loving, working, raising families. And in the case of Rome, it's, it's all occurring in the major urban center of an empire. And we come to the beginning of a letter, we get the greeting, and the greeting is a a chance to begin to ask, who are these people, and why was the level written? What is the context uh, into which this message is received? And that's, that's key to helping us interpret the meaning of the message. Now, on the highest level, the, the structure of Paul's letter is simple. We have, it's a classic letter structure where you have an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And so the introduction in Romans occurs in the first half of chapter 1, and then the the conclusion occurs in the second half of chapter 15, and then chapter 16. So the body of the letter is everything in between. And we can can separate the body into a simple structure where we we get the first first part is theology or right thinking. That's chapters 1 through 11. And then the, the, the second half is going to be ethics or right practice, chapters 12 to 15. So we move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy or from from gospel truth to gospel transformation. Paul first is going to expound the true content of the gospel, and then he's going to exhort us to transform living out of the gospel. And we'll, we'll get more into the letter structure when we address the thesis in verses 16 and 17. Um, we're starting with this basic structure of intro, body, and conclusion, and starting with the intro. And so I want to spend three lessons in the introduction. I'll, be, I'll begin with the, with the greeting. Um, Paul's, Paul's introductions for letters follow the standard uh, Greek format of, of greeting, blessing, thanksgiving, and prayer. So in verses 1 through 7, we have the greeting and blessing. For our second lesson, we'll cover Thanksgiving and prayer in verses 8 through 15. And then in in the third lesson, we'll look at the thesis, which is going to be verses 16 and 17. As a a skilled writer, Paul uses a standard form, but he always makes it his own. And so there's a a lot to to see in his greeting. So let's let's start. We're starting with the, the greeting and the blessing. Chapter 1 of Paul of Romans, verses 1 through 7. 
Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the basic gist here is that we have a letter, and it's from Paul, and it's to the beloved of God in Rome called his saints, and there's this final blessing of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the from section, so in the first five verses, we're we're packed with tons of phrases that we're going to need to unravel a little bit to see what Paul's getting at. And it's, it's not going to be just about Paul. It's also about the content of his gospel. The first three phrases establish Paul's ethos or his, his credibility with the Romans. He's not been to Rome. So who is he to be writing the Romans? Well, first, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And the implication is that Paul does not act on his own account. He's a servant who has a master. He's acting at the call of his master. Second, his master has called him to the role of apostle. And an apostle could just be this general idea of one who's been sent out. And so for New Testament ministry, any messenger of the gospel, an evangelist or a missionary, uh, could be called an apostle. But, But back in the very early days of the church, back in Acts 1, there was already this this technical meaning of of the term. And so when the the first disciples were trying to find an apostle to replace Judas, they already had some requirements in mind. They were looking for one who had walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry, and he also needed to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul seems to to understand when he's being called to an apostle, it's not just the general idea of missionary or evangelist, but there's this special role that he's filling. And and he also seems to be a, a, aware that he's lacking in the qualifications. So he says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 10, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul sees, he understands himself to be a servant who's been sent out as an apostle, a messenger. And a messenger needs a message. So we get this third phrase, Paul sees himself as being set apart for the gospel of God. That's his message, the gospel of God. For the next three verses, Paul's going to take a, a, a moment to, to clarify what is that gospel? What is that good news? And his first comment about it is that it was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's letting us know that, that when it comes to the good news, this is not about religious innovation. It's not Paul's idea. He might call it my gospel. He, he's going to do that in the last three verses of this letter. 
but he doesn't mean my gospel in the sense that I came up with it. He means it's, it's my gospel in the sense it's the one I believe in, it's the one I proclaim. But Paul is, is essentially a servant of his master, and he's been called to a role, and he's been given a message. He's not speaking um, out of his own head. He's speaking the message that's been, been given to him. And this message was announced ahead of time in the Old Testament. Now, there's, there's a lot of new about the New Covenant, and Paul's going to be very clear about that. There is what we would call discontinuity. Some things have ended, and some new things have begun. And if we, if we were to understand the mission and structure of the gospel wholly on the pattern of the Old Testament, we'd be pouring new wine into an old wineskin, and it wouldn't hold. It's the wrong way to do the gospel. The gospel is not just an upgrade on the old covenant, the gospel there is newness in the new covenant, and perhaps because there is such significant newness that Paul shows a concern through the entire letter of Romans um, to emphasize the continuity that the gospel has with the Old Testament, that he's constantly quoting and referring back to the law and the prophets to show that it's not just true that there's discontinuity, there's continued continuity. This message flows out of the law and the prophets, while at the same time unashamedly bringing about significant change in Jesus Christ. Because that's the next thing he's got to say about this gospel, that it's about the Son. The promise that God gave in the prophets is concerning his Son. And notice who the Son is. Two things. First, he's human. He's of flesh. He's truly human. And not just any human. He's a descendant of David. And that's, that's why we call him Christ, because Christ means Messiah, anointed one, the King. He is the Son of David foretold, the King who was to come. Okay, even more than that, he's divine. He is the Son of God, and he was declared so with power when he was raised from the dead. John told us that what Jesus said before he died, he said that no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up again. Who says, I have authority to raise up my own life? Who says that? God. God says that. And we, we don't need to get into right now, was it the Father that raised Jesus, or was it Jesus that raised Jesus, or was it the Spirit that raised Jesus? I mean, the answer pretty much is yes, um, because this is the Trinity, and we're not going to get into the Trinity right now. But here's the basic claim of Christianity that Paul's pointing out. Power over death shows off the true nature of Jesus Christ. He is God, and he's man. So through his ministry, Paul's message has always been Christ-centered, if we were to go and, and look in, into Acts, Luke gives us several examples of the, the preaching of Paul. And a very short summary is in Acts 17, 2-3. So having arrived in Thessalonica, Paul begins his ministry in the synagogue. And Luke writes, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So this is this the core of Paul's gospel message is always Jesus. 
But Paul is not going to argue in Romans that Jesus is the Christ and that he had to die and raise again and that he's both God and man. He has made that argument and he does make that argument. Luke shows us this is clear. But in the case of Romans, Paul is assuming these truths, that all we get on these truths are just these two verses. And since Paul is able to assume these truths, I think he assumes the Romans also agree with these truths. You know, he's being clear about his understanding of who Jesus is, and at the same time, he's building common ground with his audience. You know, if they wonder what Paul's gospel is all about, they can rest assured it is all about Jesus Christ, who is man, Messiah, and God. No question, we assume that we're on the same page. Now we can move ahead to the, the focus of Romans. Romans not going to be about the who of the gospel, but the how of the gospel. For the who of the gospel, we could go to John and we could do a study on the nature of Jesus and the nature of faith in Jesus, and it would be a wonderful study, and we need to do that sometime. That was John's concern writing his gospel. Who is Jesus? In Romans, Paul assumes agreement on the who. He's going to move on to argue the how. How is it that faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings about God's righteous plan of salvation? But that's, uh, that's skipping ahead a bit to the thesis. So coming back in verse 5, we get a f- back to our uh, from section. Who's this, who's this letter from? We get a fourth bit of information about Paul the Apostle. So Paul understands that he's been given a special gift of grace from Jesus to be called as an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. And this, this agrees going all the way back to Paul's con- conversion. We get a record of what Jesus told Ananias. He said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So he has been chosen to bear my name before the Gentiles. And you, you look into, for example, Galatians chapter 1, 7 through 10, there's this interesting conversation that Paul had with James and with with Peter and with John, where they agreed that while the the disciples had this special ministry to the Jews as apostles to the Jews, Paul had this special work as apostle to the Gentiles, which has played out over the past 10 years of Paul's life as he's been a missionary in Asia Minor, Macedonia, and in Greece. In describing his special ministry to the Gentiles, Paul uses here a curious phrase He says that he's been called to bring about the obedience of faith. So that's his goal. His goal is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles and to do it for the sake of the name of Jesus. The phrase is a little bit ambiguous, and that ambiguity in the English is is the same in the Greek. Uh, we We could narrow this down to two possible meanings. Either faith itself is the obedience or faith is the source of obedience. If faith is the obedience, then the phrase would mean that Paul is seeking to bring about among Gentiles the obedient act of faith. So his goal would be belief in Jesus. If faith is the source of obedience, then Paul's desire is to bring about life change among Gentiles, which flows out of faith in Jesus. So obedience of faith is that obedience which comes from having believed in Jesus. Now, to, to be fair, we could just say that it, it, it's both. Um, I lean towards the second. I think what Paul is saying 
is that he's been called to bring about an obedience that flows out of faith in Jesus. And I, I think we get a glimpse of this in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 17. Paul's going to give thanks to God that the Romans have become obedient from the heart. It is an obedience of faith accomplished by a new internal reality brought about by the gospel, a new way of seeing and living out the will of God. It is the circumcision of the heart promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 36. It's one of the new realities of the new covenant. But we'll have to wait until we get into the body of the letter to consider more deeply how Paul envisions this obedience of faith working out in the lives of Gentiles. So now moving on to verse 6, Paul addresses his audience for the first time. Among whom, that is among the Gentiles, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And so the last thing that Paul says about himself, which is that he's an apostle specifically for the Gentiles, leads into the first thing he has to say about the Romans. So now we're in the two section of the greeting, and he's identifying them as Gentiles. The Romans are primarily addressed as Gentiles. And that's that creates quite a this an interesting question in the letter to the Romans, because there's lots of Jewish reference as you go throughout. So Paul's his literary antagonists um, throughout chapters 1 through 11 is, is certainly Jewish. He also is, is constantly referring to or quoting from the Old Testament. The, when we get to chapter 14, the issues of conscience chapter is going to address disagreements that stand out of Old Covenant practices. So with all this Jewish flavor, how are we to understand that Paul refers to the, the Romans as, as primarily Gentile? There are several considerations to take into account. So if we go back to the, the book of Acts and all the way to the beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, we see that at Pentecost, we're, we're told Jews were present, Jews from Rome. And so in these thousands who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ in that early revival, we can imagine that, that some would have, in the months to come, returned home to Rome and would have taken the the message of the Christ into the synagogue. Probably the best assumption then is that we've we've got the early Christian movement starting in the synagogue. About 10 years later, in AD 41, at the beginning of his reign, the emperor Claudius removed the right of assembly from Jews. And so if they hadn't already been doing this, we we could assume that this pushed forward the practice of Roman Christians meeting in the homes of one another. Eight years after this, Claudius actually expelled Jews from Rome. He kicks them out. And Luke mentions this edict of expulsion in Acts 18.2 as the reason that Priscilla and Aquila had left Rome. That edict was presumably relaxed when Nero replaced Claudius as emperor in 54 AD. So if, if Paul writes the letter around AD 57, then... Um, we can understand why Priscilla and Aquila are now back in Rome because there's a new emperor in charge, and so the edict of expulsion no longer stood. That gives us about a five-year period when there were there was no Jewish leadership for the Christian movement in Rome, and we can imagine Gentile believers stepping into the roles of leadership, and we can also imagine that the Christian movement continued to to grow, and so that it's becoming more and more Gentile, both in terms of number and in terms of of culture. So this this doesn't mean that there are no Jews present, even though Paul's able to address address uh, the Roman believers 
generally as Gentiles, when we when we look at chapter 16, we see quite a number of, of Jewish names. And so presumably when the edict of expulsion was relaxed, Jewish leaders were able to enter back into positions of service and leadership. And so they're, they're there, and, and yet Paul can say things like he does down in verse 13. He can say, I want to obtain fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. What we have in Rome, then, is a community that began with Jews and still includes Jews, at the same time is primarily Gentile with a mix of Gentile and Jewish leadership. And we might ask, so what? You know, why does it matter that we know who the audience is? Well, a basic principle of biblical interpretation is that the author is communicating to an audience. The meaning of the text is the meaning that the original author, inspired by God, intended for the original audience. Understanding the audience to whom Paul wrote and understanding the circumstances of his writing can help us at times to interpret the meaning of a particular text. So, for example, in chapter 217, Paul writes, If you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, dot, 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 you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? It's a strong negative challenge to those who bear the name Jew. And when he makes that challenge, is he addressing all the members of the church in Rome? Is Paul strongly challenging them in their behavior? No, his, his Christian audience is primarily Gentile. So who then is he dressing? Is he, is he calling out Jewish members of the church? Well, that's not likely either, since he's affirming of the Roman believers throughout the letter, both Jew and Gentile. And so as we, as we go through the letter, we, we conclude with this reference and with others that, that Paul has set up a literary antagonist based on real antagonism that he's experienced from his own people who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that throughout. And knowing, knowing the audience helps us to understand this. It helps us to get at the meaning of the text. It's not only helpful here, it's going to be helpful in in other places. There's a tension in the letter between acknowledging the Jewish source of the gospel and allowing the gospel to be free from religious um, and cultural practices that come with Judaism. So in this tension of of both being grounded in Judaism yet free of Jewish culture, um, Paul Paul remains aware that he's writing to a, a community that is that is born out of Judaism and, and has both Gentile and Jewish believers. That awareness, we presume, will affect how he communicates the gospel and how he exhorts the Romans to live out the gospel. So as we as we go through the letter, interpreting the letter, we keep in mind what does this mean or what could this have meant to the original audience? And we know a little bit about them. For interpretation, the audience matters. One more assumption we see that Paul makes about his audience is that they're Christians. We see that in verse 7. They are the beloved of God, and they're called as saints. And for Paul, saint is not a term for some especially holy believer. A saint is a term of any true believer. A saint is one who has been made holy by God through faith in Jesus Christ and who has been set apart for special service. Every believer has a role and has been set apart especially by God to serve that role. So then we get to our last verse, verse 7. And the blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is Paul's typical blessing. 
He usually asks for grace and for peace, and he usually refers both to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. And you, you could you could say these are just platitudes, just stock phrases. This is the way a good Christian minister um, ends a greeting. You know, it sounds spiritual. But I, I believe we know this is not the case with Paul. Paul really wants God's grace to be on you. He really wants you to experience peace with God. He believes deeply in God the Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ to bring about these blessings in your life. And just as Paul believes this, I, I believe it too. And so grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.